Welcome, everyone, to DEI After Five, the show that focuses on topics across diversity, equity, and inclusion with some of the brightest minds in the industry. Here's your hostess, inclusive culture curator and coach, Sasha Thompson. Hey everyone, welcome to DEI After Five. I am really excited about this episode. So typically when I do sessions or workshops with um, organizations, one of the things that I have them do is look at the diversity iceberg. And with that diversity iceberg, I ask them to select five areas that are most important to them, right, as they identify. And what is very fascinating about that is so many people have a difficult time understanding the instructions, right? What are your identities? What are the five that show up the most for you? And it's such a struggle because so many people have never had to think about it. Whereas others, because of how they, they identify, quickly can pick out the five that are most important to them because it's something they have to constantly think about. And so what we're going to do today is talk to my guest, Chris Hooten, about just our identities and how that may manifest for us, particularly when we're at several intersections. So Chris, welcome to today's show. Thank you for having me, Sasha. It was great to get the invitation and I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. So for anyone that may not know who you are, can you tell us just a little bit about who you are and how you got into this work? Yes. So my name is Chris Hooten. My pronouns are they, them. And I like to start off my introduction by talking about from where I come from. So uh, I am a descendant of enslaved Africans in the United States of America. Uh, My grandfather was born in Clinton, Mississippi on the same plantation that his grandfather was enslaved on. And my grandfather picked cotton. And he moved in the second Great Migration to Indiana, where he met my grandmother. My grandmother and he had my mother. And my mother and my father met in uh, the 1980s. And then in 1992, I came around, right? And so I, I mentioned that because I think it's important to talk about the fact that we're all a process, right? So we don't just plop in and when we walk into a space, we don't just walk into that space as automatons, right? We come with the histories and the cultures and the perspectives and the jokes um, and the mannerisms that we've inherited and that we were shaped by. Um, and so I started doing DEI work. I like to joke from the moment that I was born, right? So some of us are not allowed to uh, opt in into this work. Uh, some of us were, mm. were born into it. And uh, after the death and murders, of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, we all saw and noticed, uh, at least temporarily, a huge emphasis on uh, a racial reckoning, right? a desire to want to do something. And so uh, I saw that that was, in- that was a huge interest and became a director of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, but I soon noticed that uh, working within institutions was limiting um, in that you often have to deal with the interactions of people. Um, and so it's hard to do the work of holding people accountable while also being in the space, right? Yes. And so I decided to start my consulting firm um, soon after that. And I focused on the intersections of LGBTQ identity, uh, trans and non-binary identity and neurodivergence. 
I love it. I love it. And you know, it, it's always, um, I appreciate people talking about their journey into this work because mm. in so many ways it's very different, but in so many ways it's very similar. Um, because I, I too say that I was born into this, right? Like DEI found me. I didn't necessarily go out and look for it. Um, but it's something that I hold near and dear. And so, and I appreciate those intersections of identity and knowing your ancestral history, because it does shape, you know, who you are and, and how you show up in, in many ways um, for the good or for the bad, right? Yes. There's so many of us too that understand that there are some ancestral ties that possibly need to be broken in order for us to meet, move forward. So thank you for that. You know, so talk to us a little bit about, and we'll definitely dive into this because the aspects of identity that you said you focus on are aspects that are not often spoken about at those intersections. I know. Right? And so I talk to people constantly about well, how can we have this conversation about X? Or how can we have this conversation about Y? And I'm like, well, how are we separating X and Y? Because that's one thing for so many people. And it's difficult, especially if you live in one intersection, but don't live in the other, mm -hmm. to, to see how that can impact someone else and how they show up. And so talk to me about, you know, the trans LBGT, LGBTQ plus intersection with, we'll start with BIPOC, right? Yeah. Because I think that's probably one of the more common intersections that we do at least know or, or more acknowledge more yeah. than others. Um, so when you're doing this work, what are some of the most challenging, I'm gonna get to the hard stuff, the ch most challenging conversations that take place at that intersection? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. I think that it's important for any practitioners in equity to sort of start from where they come from and where their lens is. And so I think when we talk about DEI, those are three very different things yeah. that uh, people chose to group together um, for purpose of convenience, but a lot has been lost in translation. And I think mm. a lot is lost in terms of the effectiveness. And so I share and I, I offer up the real the uh, clarification that I am an equity worker, right? Um, so my my primary um, locus of influence and, and, and niche is not necessarily in trying to diversify a space because I, mm. I feel that a lot of spaces already are very diverse, um, even if we may not think or see or, or view it as such. Um, and inclusion is a, a, a hard thing to try to get at um, that oftentimes needs equity to sort of be present before it even is possible. Um, and so I borrow from the Sitsika Blackfoot Nations orientation of the world. So uh, it's hard to sort of, I have to sort of go way back and talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right? Mm. So Maslow, um, his hierarchy of needs in 1942, 1943 were, was offered, but he didn't give credit to the Sitsika Blackfoot Nation where he went for six weeks when he was having trouble with that theory. And uh, he observed the indigenous collectivist way of living. He, he observed how everyone there met their needs and how the community had a role in meeting the needs and how self-actualization was not in, an, in a vacuum, 
right? right? So one was self-actualized so that one could then offer up to others to help them become self-actualized. And ultimately that would help the entire community become self-sufficient, the entire community become a repertoire of resources. And so that, that viewpoint saw every single person as an integral and indispensable resource within right. the community. Everyone was a, 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 a repertoire of possibilities, right? And uh, Maslow, coming from his point of view, stripped that beautiful, uh, circular, strong orientation around needs and turned into how can I as an individual get what I need, right? Mm -hmm. um, and my work is really focusing on honoring that indigenous knowledge, right? And, bring, and bringing it back. And so when I tell people that I work on meeting the needs of trans, non-binary, LGBTQ, BIPOC and neurodivergent folks, I talk about belonging, right? Yes. I talk about agency. I talk about competence, which is really, can I learn and am I expected to learn? Am I supported in my learning in this space? I talk about self-esteem. Is this community affirming who I am and how I show up, right? Mm -hmm. I talk about uh, trust. Do I have what I need? Can I predict things? Are things stable? Are they predictable? Do I feel okay, right? All of these are sort of are, are the core needs. And so the framework that I offer is how can the community help individuals and groups and cultures feel more affirmed in meeting those needs? And so, you know, now we can talk about my identities, right? So I, I'm Black, Black American, darker skinned. Um, and I'm also non-binary, which means that I don't fully feel 100% that I can or should fit into the expectations that we assign to um, women or men, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so uh, I often tell people that oftentimes, if you are non-binary or trans, a lot of it is framed around what you're not. Right. And I offer up an alternative around, um, I choose to be a combination of both my masculinity and my femininity. Right. I am both and beyond. Right. And I also recognize that as a person who was socialized as male and assigned male at birth, I come with, I don't call it privilege, I call it unearned advantages, right? Because I don't think it's a privilege to be misgendered um, in, in our society. Um, but I have the unearned advantage in many spaces to be assumed or read as male or as right. a male and what that comes with. Right. And so I've I've been, my journey has been to uh, follow the lead of trans women in particular, you know, mm. black trans women in particular, black, you know, trans, disabled, larger body women in particular, right? Um, I learned from them. I learned from the indigenous. I learned from the neurodivergent people. Um, and on the point about neurodivergence, we talked about race, we talked about um, being non-binary and LGBTQ, identify also as asexual and queer. Um, I don't, I don't really sort of ascribe to believing in a static view of neurodivergence, right? And so mm -hmm. it's popular or to say, you know, oh, I am, you know, I have ADHD, you know, or I am autistic. And, and I love that for people. <clears throat> That's just not my ministry, right? Okay, got my it. intention okay. is much more of going back to that process, right? So I believe in it being a process of, I am not disabled. I am who I am. And I am disabled by the structures and conditions in which I am having to navigate. Yes. Ooh. That's, that's a different conversation than 
this person is disabled, mm -hmm. they sort of use them as this sort of um, like you are you are a product. And I tell people all the time, we are a process, not a product. Mm -hmm. If you look at somebody as I have this person has this or this person is this, there really isn't a conversation about our responsibility to meet their needs right. as a collective and our belief in their ability to meet high expectations. Chris, so I'm going to if I could give you a virtual hug, I would right now <laughs> because there was just so much that you said. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to work my way backwards um, in what you said. The last part of what you were talking about, um, I had in, on the first season of the show, uh, Sherry Byrne Haber and just talked about, you know, people being differently abled. Yeah. Right. And not being disabled um, and how we think about, okay, this is just how I have to navigate the world in a different way. Yeah, That's the mindset of what it is. Now for organizations, it's, are you creating environment that allows me to be able to navigate in a way that I need to navigate, right? So again, I appreciate, you know, you framing it that way because it puts the onus on the environment yeah. to make the shifts and changes versus the onus on the individual. Um, and again, the same with neurodivergency. It's, I think differently, I process differently, you know, I socialize differently. And so how are we creating environments that allow for and support that regardless of where you are on the quote unquote spectrum, right? Yeah. What does that look like? Um, and so it, again, takes the onus off of the individual, particularly if an organization is saying, you know, we're an inclusive environment. Well, how inclusive are you? Right. And, and what, how are you censoring normalcy in this environment? Because if anyone is different than that, right, and they have to navigate or function in a different way, then is it truly inclusive? Right? Yeah. So, I'm, I'm just loving, yes. Especially when we think about the 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 added part about identity around race, right? And gender, yes. right? So like, we often have this conversation around like, oh, this person is neurodivergent, they need accommodations. And I offer up an alternative perspective where I say, this person is bringing all of their identities, all of their lived experiences, all of their memories, all of their learned adaptations with them into this space. Um, and if we, as a community, choose not to affirm and make space mm. for and learn from this person and their bringing in the gift, really, of who they are, they are not going to feel affirmed mm -hmm. and they're going to either feel alienated, they're going to feel apologetic for who they are, um, or they're going to feel avoidant, like everyone's avoiding them. And so what I offer up, one of my tools that I use is, is a quadrant, and it basically, one the x-axis is how affirming, how, uh, how much attachment is in the space, right? And then the other axis is how much authenticity is in the space. And so mm -hmm. what I coach uh, companies on is how can we create a space where each individual person feels that they can bring their full authentic self without worry or stress, and they still feel attachment, right? And it really is, you know, relationships. Yeah. Right? Like, oh, I value you. I honor it the way that you are. And... Um, also, you belong here. We believe in your ability to contribute. We yeah. see your value, right? Yes. Um, 
And yeah. that's really the sweet spot, right? And it's that's difficult to do for a lot of people. Um, but it's, it's it, even more so when you think about race and, and, and gender and, and neurodivergence. You know, and it's so funny because I often say people want to feel valued, seen, heard, and connected wherever they are. And it seems simple, right? Mm -hmm. Until you start to unpack what it means to feel valued. Right. What does that look like for people? Because not everyone sees value in the same way. Right. And so I may just need you to acknowledge that I did X, Y and Z where someone's like, I don't even care if you acknowledge it. <laughs> right. Is just pay check, me for it. Is the check is the income? The right. <laughs> just pay me for it. Right. Right. So that value looks different. You know, being seen. What does that look like or what does that mean for you? You know, heard all of those things. And so it's it seems very simple. It's like, oh yeah, everyone feels valued, seen, heard, and connected. Great. You may feel that, yeah. but you can't speak for someone else. Right. And then, and then, and what you, you know, spoke to is if someone is not feeling that way, don't blame them for that. Yeah. Right. And how are you creating a space to accommodate Okay, if you're not feeling valued, then what do we need to do in order to honor that? And I, oh, I love how you put, you know, the gifts that you bring into this space. Yeah, because if we leave that person, if they don't, if they leave, then, oh, well, and I think oftentimes we find that, you know, manage, and I get it, being a manager is very, very difficult. Yeah. We're all living under late stage capitalism. It's very difficult out here. People are getting cut left and right. I understand the stressors, right? And the inclination is, okay, that person is a troubled person. We're gonna push them out. And then everyone's like, ah, okay, everything's great. Until the <laughs> other people in that space start exhibiting the exact same learned adaptations, beliefs, behaviors, or somebody else, you know, gets bring gets brought into that community. And then it happens all over again, right? Yeah. Because they, they're we're focused on this and you know, this person who's a, um, an outsider coming in and disrupting the community. And the culture, if your culture was strong, if your culture was rich, if your culture was uh, inclusive, inclusive, resilient, adapt, yep. had a growth mind. We talk about having a growth mindset for individuals. What about a culture? Does a culture have a growth mindset? Does a culture look at somebody who's different and say, that is a culture ad? Yeah. Okay? And then we, and that, thank you for the opportunity for us to grow and to change and to learn from your experience, because now we can affirm you, we can affirm everybody else that comes after you. Yeah. Right? And then it's not seen as a threat. And I think that's the piece that, you know, I wanted to go back to you talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Um, I've been doing work and actually two of my coaching certifications are from the Maslow um, Center for Leadership, for, Center for Executive Leadership. Yeah. And it's kind of taken, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and put it in the workplace. And that inclusion and belonging part that you're talking about is a basic need, right? Like those are basic needs within organizations and it's basic along with onboarding, you know, and, and all some of these other things that you think you need when you come into the door. Um, and so as you're talking about that and trust is such a huge piece of that, yes. right? It's how consistent are you in doing what you say you're going to do. Yeah. Because as soon as something falls askew from that, then trust starts to be eroded. And so yeah. 
again, when you're talking about community and you're talking about affirming people's identities and where they are, regardless of what their intersections of identities are, it has to be true in every single instance, every right? Single instance. Regardless of how they show oh. up, it needs to be consistent. Um, and then the one thing, the first thing you said, because I'm, I'm working my way backwards, because I was like, oh, he is saying some, they are saying some stuff, my apologies. No they're saying some things that um, are just clicking for me. And when you talked about, you know, not doing diversity work per se, um, mm. and needing inclusion to be kind of that end result that you have to do through the equity piece, and that's where you focus. That's how the name the equity equation came about, right? Because oh. I saw it as an equation of yeah. this is the missing factor in getting to inclusion and getting to belonging. We don't talk enough about equity. Yes. And so it's balancing that equation between what do people need or what barriers do we need to remove in order for people to be successful, right? Yes. So you, you've hit all the things, all the things. <laughs> that I, I love and you know we're talking about. Um, so again, as, as organizations are working through this and trying to create these environments, and I, I love that you talked about culture because that is where a lot of the work that I do now is based in creating these inclusive cultures um, and doing so with people leaders centered in that. Yes, right because that, that's a whole other area. But as you're working with organizations or as people are listening to this, what is something that they need to keep in mind that they may not be thinking about as they're doing this work? Yes. Ooh, there's so much. <laughs> I, just, I just gave a talk. I was just a keynote speaker at a trans and non-binary student summit. Um, mm. And I was, I was only asked to give a talk for about half an hour, but it, you know, it soon transitioned into two and a half hours of, of, of a facilitated conversation. And because, you know, I draw from indigenous and African traditional ways of, of sharing knowledge. And so I, I tell people, we're not, I'm not about to stand up here on this podium and give a static talk. I feel as though, you. <laughs> as though you are all people who just have open minds and I'm just depositing information to you. Right. We're going to have a conversation and I'm going to offer up some frameworks and get your feedback and learn. And I'm going to, I'm going to honor the, the wisdom and knowledge that you all bring to the space. And yes. it was a really rich conversation. And one of the things that came up was this feeling of pressure that people have around being trans and non-binary mm. and not really being right now feeling under attack, right? And so what I, what I tell people is who, who may not be in that experience, who may not be trans and non-binary or gender expansive is these laws that are happening across the country um, they don't just target individuals. They target our sense of possibility. Hmm. They, they are they, they come from a, a, a fear of lack of trust, right? So people who are in power, we all, to some degree, want there to be a certain level of stability, whether stability in the economy, stability in our jobs, stability in our neighborhoods. And so we are conditioned by millennia of conditioning uh, to look at changes, sudden changes, as threats. And so as we've been inclusive and in trying to be more equitable and affirming to different genders, 
you know, the introduction of they, them pronouns, Z, Zim, Zim, Zer, right? All, all these are the pronouns and the things that happen really out of the uh, the feminist movements in in the uh, the academia space, right? The, the mm -hmm. white colleges. Um, we're seeing some pushback with the word Latinx for that very reason, right? Yeah. Because, you know, it, because there really isn't a relationship. And I think it comes down to a relationship. We don't have a relationship with different parts of these different groups and different uh, collaborations. And so there's tension. And so I think that um, I always offer them which need is not being met right now, right? So which, and, and from the way I view it is, uh, the person who is creating a law saying, we're gonna, create, we're gonna outlaw this and, and make it harder to get this care and everything, they're operating from a place of fear that there's too much change, there's too much uh, happening. Mm -hmm. um, and I offer the idea that, it's not that there's more transgender people or there are more non-binary folks in the same way that there were no more left-handed people when we stopped making it illegal to pe for people to be left-handed. Now, once mm -hmm. we stopped forcing children to be left-handed and stopped forcing them to be right-handed, all of a sudden the number of left-handed people exploded. And what, did, what changed were the conditions, not right. who people were, right? And so, um, I'll, I'll, the last thing I'll say around this is the idea of being cautious around, this goes back to my original point that I really wanted to get at. I, I recently developed a, a what I call a six tens process for putting yourself out there. There's a lot of pressure on young people, especially, and, and other people to come out. Yeah. And I think that, that that's very unnuanced and it can, in some cases it can be dangerous especially now with where we're currently at when it comes to transgender laws and what I call gender restrictive laws. They're not anti this bill, they're really restricting gender expression, gender exploration, mm -hmm. right? And gender discovery. Because if somebody <clears throat> doesn't explore their, their gender and they, they don't uh, feel like it's possible to, to change, they're not going to do that, yeah. right? And I'm fortunate that I was able to, during the pandemic, because we weren't around other people and we weren't being socialized in these ultra gendered spaces, I was able to come to terms with the fact that, oh, I actually am non-binary. I, you know, I looked back at my, my history and I realized nothing was really affirming in any of the gendered spaces that I was offered, hmm. right? And so um, I tell people, please be cautious when it comes to, you know, we, we want to affirm and, and be inclusive and oh, come out and, and all these other things. And that's a very European colonialist imperialist framework that uh, encourages people, especially people of color, to come out. But in often doing so, they are detaching or creating distance from their communities that they currently have relationships with. And mm. so I tell people, the white communities that are LGBTQ plus and queer are not going to be there to open their arms and accept Black. Black and brown. Yeah. They, people come out. Right, they can't give those people what they need, so they should not be telling them to come out. Yeah. So there needs to be more of a nuanced conversation, um, and so uh, don't assume, but also don't pressure. Right. Well, you know what you're saying. It, it goes back to that intersection, right, where it's there's quote unquote comfort in the coming out process to some you know degree for communities that may not have that racial challenge some of the racial challenges that come along with that yeah. right so if you are um 
I mean, use the word privileged, but if you are privileged in in that space, yeah, you you may not be see you not you may not understand that there are other barriers to coming out than just doing that, right? There's a whole thing around, especially in the black community, around um, acceptance of the LGBTQ plus community that is still a, a struggle for many people. Um, you know, again, when you look at let's bring in, you know, religious diversity, that's a whole other area that when it intersects with the LGBTQ plus community, there could be some challenges, right? So it goes back to those intersections and understanding the history and understanding the nuances that may or may not be impacting someone, quote unquote, just coming out. Yes, yes. Oh. It's, it, it, it's it's so rich and it's so it's so complex, right? Like we could talk about the fear that some black women have around transgender and non-binary identity because they have been robbed of or prevented from their own femininity and expressing yeah. that. And so, yeah. like you know, there's there's such rich conversations that I I know people can't always uh, take up, right? And so what I you know, I said, well, Chris, what do I do? Well, Chris, what do I do? It's like, well, first offer or like release any pressure on yourself and release any blame that you may feel or not feel because that's not helpful to anyone at least not yourself and it prevents you and us <clears throat> from coming from a place of humility and openness and love right and curiosity actually yeah. you know as well because i think um for me i i can speak about my journey I am always I'm a constant student, right? So I'm always trying to learn, but it's not just book knowledge, right? It's listening and understanding people that are part of these communities and, and some of the challenges and struggles or hopes or, you know, the things that they're looking for support in and understanding the role that I can play in yeah. supporting that. Right. And that's not me speaking on behalf of. Right. But it's if I, I am in a place of privilege, how can I leverage that or yes. utilize that to create space for people to share their stories and to tell, you know, to, to speak their truth? And that's how I look at it. Right. That's how I can play. And I hate the phrase ally. That's how I can be an accomplice in this, because I'm willing to risk more in sharing that platform, then I think many people um, are willing to to risk. And so I think it's so important that we, we talk about this in this way um, because there are so many people that aren't stepping forward because of that fear. They aren't stepping forward because they don't know all the answers. They aren't stepping forward because it's just the unknown, right? And so it's it's how you start that journey and how do you continue that journey because it's ever evolving. So I appreciate that. Chris, I have one last question for you. How do you fill your cup? Like, how do you take care of yourself? Because this is like, this is some heavy stuff. Yeah. <laughs> like, this is, this is not easy work to do, um, particularly, and I am so appreciative of, and I know I've said that a million times in this, this episode, of it's difficult when you are the people that you're advocating for. Yeah. Right. Like you're doing the work and you are the work. And so how are you taking care of yourself through this process? 
Well, you're right in that it's really difficult because, you know, you're right because it's difficult because uh, this work, I, I I have so much of the 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 lived experience and, and so many negative experiences that come with being, you know, racialized as black, being non-binary, um, being not, you know, neurodivergent. And uh, what I do is I just, I give myself grace. Mm. I offer as much grace as I possibly can to myself. Um, and I also come back to the realization that we are all a process, you know, not a product. Right? We are all growing. We are all learning. I'm reading a book. I'm, I'm like you. I'm always reading. I read 22 books last year on DEI topics, and this year I'm trying to be a little more reasonable and only read one a month. Um, but the one that I'm reading currently is um, "The Myth of Normal" by Dr. Gabor mm -hmm. And this book has really transformed my relationship to myself and my own childhood trauma. Um, and what, there's a mantra that I keep using over and over again. You know, I am protecting, I am guiding, I am healing. Mm. And what I mean by that is I am protecting, guiding, and healing my inner child that was wounded, right? So, so much of what I offer to people are ways that they can protect, guide, and heal mm. young people so that they can develop into strong, resilient, affirming, loving people who can offer freely, right? Um, and that's the world that I envision. So it, it's, but if you're, if you're getting more specific, I do a lot of things, meditation, you know, yoga, green tea, long walks, um, but I always come back to like, is this meeting my needs? Yeah, is this Maslow. Meeting, right? Like, <laughs> and if it's not, uh, that's okay. Uh, I can, I, I tell people, you don't have to receive everything that you're offered. Yes. Right? And if you can, you're allowed to ask yourself, if is what I'm being offered meeting my needs? Yes. And if the answer is no, that's okay. And be okay with the consequences. Yes. Right? Yes. That's the part that we don't, like, oh, there's a shock. Oh, it's like, yeah, well, there might be consequences. They might not like you. They might turn away. You might not right. get invited back. And that's okay. You have to have an alternative. Uh, yes. Chris, how can people get in contact with you? So I am, follow, you can follow me on LinkedIn. I'm not on social media. That was a choice that I made uh, in 2020 after George Floyd and Maud Arbery and Beyonce Taylor. Uh, and I recognized that there were some feelings I didn't appreciate coming up in myself. So mm. uh, I made the conscious choice not to be on social media. Uh, but you can email me at chrishoodenconsulting at gmail.com. Um, and you can also uh, reach me at my phone number that will be included on the bottom. Um, and you can you can just type in Chris Hooten on LinkedIn. I'll be the beautiful one. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. You know, it's there. Oftentimes there are conversations that I have that I get really excited about. And, you know, I'm like amped up. And uh, this one I was so excited for. But it was just there was also a level of peace. That was a part of it. And so I appreciate that because these are, again, difficult topics, but to be able to do so in a way that is um, honoring and supportive. And again, like peace is the word that just keeps coming to me. So I appreciate that because um, we need this in this space. So yeah. Thank you. thank you for the invitation. It's been a pleasure. I, I love being asked to come talk and, and offer um, and thank you for you know offering up an opportunity for people to offer in this way.
I appreciate it. Thank you, Sasha. You're very welcome. So thank you, Chris. Thank you all for watching this week's episode of DEI After Five. And as always, you can find us here on YouTube or your favorite um, podcast platform. And until next time, have a good one.